Well, thank you, Pastor, for that uh, kind introduction. I've had uh, a wonderful time here in these last, uh, well, yesterday, uh, well, a lot yesterday. I think I spoke four times yesterday, and so a couple of times today, so I'm kind of getting comfortable with you, comfortable with the spot, and uh, I have to say that uh, I, I sense uh, a warmth of fellowship here, the presence of the Holy Spirit, people love the Bible, and so a great freedom to preach God's Word, which I'm going to do at this time. The text that we're going to be looking at this morning is from Mark, the second chapter. It's the opening uh, 12 verses of that chapter, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It is a well-traveled passage, but I think you're going to hear it a little differently this morning than perhaps you've heard it before. Uh, There's a great surprise in this text. So open your Bibles to that and we'll... Uh, begin to look at our text. Now, alpine hikers have told me that when they've been caught in a brewing storm, say up at uh, 7,000 feet or 8,000 feet, that in that brewing storm that the hair on their fellow hikers would stand out straight from their heads in a radiant crown. And the metal frames of their backpacks would begin to glow with an eerie neon-like blue light called, if you don't know this word, St. Elmo's Fire. The same phenomenon has been recorded through the centuries. You can read about it way back in early times when ancient sailors on a stormy night would see the top of the mast of their ship begin to glow uh, with a um, ghostly aura of light. What a thing to see. Well, airline pilots see it too today. Sometimes they'll see it around the windscreens on their, their, uh, in front of them as they are flying through a storm. In all cases, it means that the air is charged with electricity and lightning is about to strike. And if you're an alpine hiker, it means that you've got that backpack on, get rid of it and find a place to hide because anything could happen. I think this picture conveys something of the atmosphere in Capernaum as described in our text this morning in Mark, the second chapter, verses 1 through 12. Because, as you'll see, there's kind of a spiritual fire that's hovering over those jammed into a little house at Capernaum at the very top of the Lake of Galilee. That... that uh, The interpersonal fire is invisible, but it's palpable, and you can sense it. And verses 1 and 2 give us a feel of situation, speaking of Jesus. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he, Jesus, was preaching the word to them. Now, the home is likely that of the Apostle Peter's mother-in-law. And when word had got out that Jesus had come back to Capernaum and is in this uh, prominent house in Capernaum, people began to show up at the door. And almost immediately, the home was uh, packed with people. Some just curious, wanting to get a look at this uh, rabbi 
they've heard so much about. Others are new, bright-eyed disciples. They're hanging on every word. They can't get enough of Jesus. They can't take their eyes off of Jesus. And then important people began to show up uh, that look a little edgy, a little nervous, don't want to make eye contact. And as always the case, that crowd attracted more crowds, and pretty soon it's impossible even to get close to the door. So outside there is dust and noise and jostling and crowding, still more people pressing to get in close. But with all of that that's going on, there are really only two dominant presences. First, as the parallel account in the Gospel of Luke tells us, there were the Pharisees and teachers of the law. I mean, the unsuspecting crowd, the synagogue just being a few yards away, these, these guys coming over, it looked like the spiritual heavyweight, something like you're going to have a spiritual life conference. But actually, it's an investigative committee seeing if they can get anything on this young rabbi. Anything that they could condemn him to death. And though there's standing room only, Jesus is seated, and they're seated in front of Jesus. And so you can get the idea of, of the tensions in that room. As the rabbi, Jesus, is lecturing, preaching about the kingdom, and they're sitting right in front of him, everybody packed in. So there was kind of an interpersonal fire in the air. I mean, if you could see it, you might see that little blue glow. Jesus is sitting calm and unperturbed, and it tells us that he was preaching the word to them. In the context of Mark, that is the word of the gospel about the nearness of the kingdom and the necessity of faith and repentance. And I personally think that the crowd sensed the tension. They know what it was. But you've been in a small room where there's been some tension and you don't know what it is, but you know that it's there, the body language, the, the way the people are, the way they look. I think they sensed it. Luke says, this is very revealing, Luke 5.17, that the power of the Lord was with him to heal. That sets the charge that something's going to happen. Relational atmosphere is tense. And then a disturbance began. And Mark continues, verses 3 and 4. And they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof of the house. And when they made it open, they let down the bed in which the paralytic lay. It doesn't take much to fill in the lines here. You've got four men carrying a stretcher on which lay a helpless paralytic. Approach the fringe of the crowd. Can't get through. Can't get close to the door. Possibly they set it down for a moment, kind of looked around, surveyed the situation. And then they picked up that stretcher and they went around to the side of the house or perhaps the neighbor's house. There wasn't a stairway there got their friend up on the roof, and after much pushing and shoving and labor, they had him on the roof, caught their breath, 
And then they did the most amazing thing. They began to tear through the roof. Now, a typical roof of those days uh, in that part of the area was, uh, first of all, made of, uh, we call them roof joists. It'd just be branches that uh, became the roof joists, and then they would put smaller ones across that way so you had your basic roof. And then on top of that, they would put uh, brush and twigs about a foot thick, and on top of that, a full uh, foot of mud. So that the, the roof is about three feet thick, and they're tearing through this roof. Okay, you're inside. You, you hear a little concussion, a little uh, pounding, a little prying. You hear loud conversation between those four, like some construction workers that are at work as they dug away the dirt and tore the branches and pried that, you know, got through all that three feet. That's on the outside. Jesus and the rabbis and the Pharisees, they're inside with the others, and pretty soon dust begins to fall, and then dirt begins to fall upon them. They're shaking off their robe. Then there is a crack of light about the size of a man. And you can be sure that there are some words exchanged between those up there and those down below. Especially if this is uh, Peter's mother-in-law, because Peter was never without words. And then the paralytic slowly descended on ropes as they carefully let down the litter in which he was on. What a scene. I mean, it always is shining in Galilee. There's, there's never a foggy day in Galilee. So you've got the, the midday sun, the shafts of light shining down through the roof, almost like a spotlight in the dust. And at the bottom, there is the paralytic and Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And history will remember, would remember this, uh, what took place in Capernaum. We all know this story from beginning to end. But for just a moment, let's just step back and concentrate on those four friends. I mean, you, you think about it, you have, to, you have to think, they really love this guy. They wouldn't be put off by the crowd. They even, in terms today, abused someone else's private property to get him to Jesus. And they ignored the protests and the judgments of those around, the crowd, those that were saying, what are they doing? They really loved him. Perhaps he's family. Maybe a brother. Maybe a friend they grew up with. Maybe a neighbor that uh, they'd, they'd known for years. But whatever the relationship, these four guys really love the paralytic. And whatever happened that day, and they didn't know for sure whether it would be rejection or healing, that paralytic was a very rich man because he had something which some people spend millions and never find. I remember reading a biographical note about Christina Onassis and the millions and millions she spent to have friends and could never really get a friend. 
He was a wealthy man. And God was going to work in his life because, humanly speaking, of the friends who loved him. Now, there, this remarkable love is, is paired with something that I think is even more remarkable, and that is their faith. Now, think of it. There is no way that they would have gone to such outrageous extremes that they did unless they did not implicitly believe that Jesus could heal this man and would heal their friend. If they didn't believe that, wavering faith would have demurred. Maybe demurred when, maybe go get them on the roof, but you start tearing through somebody else's roof. Hey, guys, you've got to finish this yourselves. But nobody bolted because the four truly believed. And the faith of those four friends was not a vague, subjective, passive thing, as so many imagine faith to be today. You take a cultural definition of faith, it's sort of some floating, nice feeling that's out there. That's, that's what it is in culture today because their faith is persistent. When they got their friend on that stretcher, nothing would stop them. When they came to an obstacle like the roof, none of them said, well, door's closed. Must not be God's will. They didn't form a committee. He'd still be on the roof. And Jesus loved this. There is another passage in Scripture that is kind of well, it's a little perplexing when you read it just by itself, but it's Matthew eleven twelve, where it says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. And when those four tore through that roof, they took the kingdom by violent, determined force. Such force unleashes God's power. And Jesus still loves this. That's what pioneer missionaries do. They take the kingdom by violent force. They get out there and they do it. And such faith is also creative. Undoubtedly, if some people stand around outside looking up on the roof and seeing what's going on, they say, why didn't we think of that? Well, the reason is, is they didn't believe. And they didn't love like these men did. And their faith is sacrificial. Someone would have to repair the roof. Someone would have to pay for the roof. It would take time and labor. But price was not a consideration. So maybe you're new to uh, this fellowship. You've been coming. You've been listening to it. You like what you sing. You like the people. You... You, you see a reality in their lives you'd like to have of yourself, and, and you're thinking, what does it mean to put faith in Jesus? I think there's a little snapshot here. Because throughout the Gospel of Mark, faith is not just knowing the facts. It ultimately involves action. And that's what you have in Mark's Gospel. And the faith of those four friends meant no one would keep them from bringing their pitiful friend to Jesus. The crowd, the, the callous crowd, they found a way around the callous crowd. The roof, they just ripped it off. 
Paralytic not only had faithful friends, but faith-filled friends who so passionately believed that they got him to Jesus. Now, I'll tell you what, and I know I'm speaking for virtually everyone here as believers. We believe that Jesus is the only one who can forgive our sins. We believe that he is our only hope. We believe it with all of our heart. In fact, we rest everything on that. We passionately believe it. That's why we're here. This is what we believe. He's the only way. He's the only one that can bring healing. He's the only one that can heal our souls. He's the only one who can save us. So I want to say, if you're here today because you have some friends, some faithful friends who've invited you to come, maybe they even pestered you to be here, and that's why you're here, you are a wealthy person because you have real friends who really love and care for you. I'll tell you who the real paralytics were. It's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are just sitting there waiting to get something on Jesus. I mean, when that roof opened up, even if they weren't believing and they saw him come down, they, they should have directed the traffic to see what Jesus would do for this guy. But instead of love, instead of involvement, there is only criticism. And the Lord saw everything far more clearly than we do. So he decided, with all that electricity in the air, with that charged moment, the paralytic before him in that dusty shaft of light as he's sitting there, to make his point. And what Jesus did is absolutely, wholly shocking. Because he said to the paralytic, verse 5, My son, your sins are forgiven. You say, shocking. That's shocking for two reasons. First, because saying to him, My son, your sins are forgiven, is so shockingly irrelevant. I mean, here's a wretched guy lying on a stretcher, aching to be healed, feeling that he's a burden to others, and he's been brought to Jesus after all of this. He's lying before Jesus, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven? Thanks a lot, Jesus. Thanks for nothing. I didn't come here for a religious sleight of hand. Some words... Take me home. I mean, everyone in that room could see what that wretched man's greatest need was. It was to be healed. But if Jesus is the Son of God, then we better listen carefully because Jesus never indulges in irrelevancies. And as Jesus looked down at that man, I'll tell you what he saw. He saw shriveled appendages perhaps some bones that were bent. He saw sagging skin. He saw a man 
who was an aching prisoner of his body, but through it all, he penetrated to his greatest need, the forgiveness of his sins. And when Jesus went beyond his surface need to his greatest need, he went to the He addressed the needs of every person in that room, those lining the room standing, those especially in front of him. See, it's possible that that man could have been the most notorious sinner in Capernaum. It's possible. But it's unlikely. Because I think his paralysis would mitigate it against the kind of things that would cause people to say he was a big sinner. I mean, he didn't do adultery that day. He didn't do thievery. At least he didn't rob any banks. They had banks. He didn't abuse anybody. He couldn't abuse anybody. He simply couldn't do the things that people call the big bad sins. But Jesus' point is clear. Sin is not just about our actions, but about our hearts. So at the same time, he still could have been the biggest sinner in Capernaum. It's possible, because that's here. But his spiritual need far, was far more desperate than his physical need. And if Jesus cured that man of paralysis, beautiful as be, he'd have, if he was midlife, maybe 20, 30 years of, of health, uh, alleviated decades of misery. But... When he forgave the man's sins, he delivered him not only from his sins, but in eternity apart from God, from hell itself. You know, sometimes uh, uh, when, you, when, you're, when you're preaching things like this, you say, oh, will that penetrate our thinking? I mean, this is, this is, this is an amazing thing. It's shocking. Because you see, you may think as you come in this morning that your greatest need is a job. In our culture today, if you're out of work, got responsibilities, well, that's like a planet filling your, your horizon. Or you may think it's an education. I could just get this. I could just get the job I want. Or perhaps the thing you were thinking about most of all when you came to the door is I need a spouse. Or if you've got an illness, your health. I want to say how great those needs are. They are not your greatest needs. It is the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus' shocking actions, like a lightning bolt. But what Jesus further says here is shocking for a second reason, and that is what it says about himself. Look at verses 6 and 7. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, the scribes knew their Bibles. They're horrified. Jesus was making the appalling, blasphemous claim to be God. Because according to the Bible... Sin is essentially against God. I mean, the great example of that is King David, who had these massive horizontal sins. Adultery with Bathsheba, and then homicide 
as has Uriah the Hittite put to death. Adultery and murder. And I would say those are massive horizontal sins, especially, I mean, against Bathsheba. And how about Uriah? He's dead. But when he confesses his sin in Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4, he says to God, it's upward, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned. Now, he knew what he'd done. And he knew how horrific those sins were. He knew how awful they were. But he knew that ultimately all sin is against God. And that God's the only one who can forgive sins. So what they saw in that statement of forgiving sin that Jesus was claiming to be God incarnate, there is no doubt about it. It is blasphemy. And of course, from the shock that's on the religious teacher's faces and the horror and the satisfaction of getting something on Jesus. He knew what was going on in their minds. And you read in verses 8 and 9, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Which is easier? Well, I know what is easier. It's to say your sins are forgiven. No one can check that. There's no way. But to say, rise and take up your bed and walk, I mean, there today, from there have been billions spent by academic research communities with very little to show to heal paralysis. In fact, I, I would say this. Uh, I saw Johnny Erickson uh, about a year and a half ago. And uh, we all know, most of us know who Johnny is. She's been a quadriplegic since she was 14 years old. She's now in her 60s today. She's getting old lovely and old, but does anyone have the temerity to go up to Johnny Erickson Tata and say, Johnny, take up your bed and walk? I don't think so. I don't think so. But here, Jesus shocks again, and the electricity is like a bolt of lightning. Final verses in our text, verses 10 and 12. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. At Jesus' word, now here it is. There he is. He's on the floor. The paralytic's crooked bones straightened out and assumed their density. His tendons flexed and stretched. His atrophied muscles inflated before their very eyes. Remember the Incredible Hulk of years ago? 
I didn't become a Hulk, but his sagging skin became taut. And your 70-year-olds like me, that sounds very good. And at once he rolled off the bed, stood illuminated in that dusty shaft of light, and then he bent down, rolled up his litter, hoisted it on his shoulder, and strode out right through the door like a, a ship parting the seas and out in the sunlight where his four faithful friends no doubt had been jumped off the roof and likely leaping and hooping it up all the way home. And here it is. For Jesus, it was an easy thing to say, take up your bed and walk. Now think about that. It's easy for Jesus to say that. All it requires is a word. That's all required. And uh, out of the infinity of his omnipotence, it just happens. It just takes a word. I mean, it doesn't, there's no, it, it, there's, there's, his power isn't reduced at all. It's just the easiest thing. But the hardest thing of all for Jesus to do was to say, my son, your sins are forgiven because that meant his death on the cross. You see, in the garden, you, you go on in the book of Mark from uh, chapter 2 here on to chapter 14, and you read in verses 33 through 36 that the prospect was so horrific for Jesus, that he began to be greatly distressed. This is in Gethsemane. And he said to them, his disciples, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell down on the ground. Jesus is out on the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Perhaps there's a way. Remove this cup from me. I don't want to drink it. It's so horrific. It's so awful. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And when the hour came, he did it by dying, the lowest of all deaths, even death on a cross, as we saw yesterday. Now, in retrospect, Apostle Paul would, would describe this 15 words in the Greek, a little different in the English, 2 Corinthians 5.21, which we sang this morning. For our sake, he, that is God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Though Jesus was sinless through all of his 33 years, as he knew no sin, he remained sinless when he became sin for us so that Christ became sin while remaining inwardly and outwardly impeccable and pure. And on those three dark days and Good Friday, his heart, so to speak, uh, became like a lake at the foot of the mountain of which all of our festering sin poured into and there the loathsome mass of our corruption poured over him. And there our sins were focused on Christ as he bore the fiery wrath of God, having become a curse for us. And in full lucid consciousness, in three dark hours on Good Friday in the darkness, impaled 
to the cross, he writhed in agony as he endured the cosmic force of our sins in full lucid consciousness with a unity of understanding and pain that none can fathom. And he did it willingly so that he could say, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. So here it is. Jesus did the hardest thing ever done in time and eternity for you and me. So he could forgive our sins. There will be, there can be, there never will be anything more awful and painful and harder than what Jesus did on the cross to forgive us our sins. It means that he is committed to forgiving you if you turn to him in faith. Because he did the hardest thing ever done in time and eternity. Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, Victorian preacher, with that great literary sense and imagination, says of the event of the man, I think I see him. He sets one foot down to God's glory. He plants the other the same note. He says he walks to God's glory. He carries his bed to God's glory. He moves his whole body to the glory of God. He speaks. He shouts. He sings. He leaps to the glory of God, said Spurgeon. What a display to the wondering crowd. Who's to say that paralytic and his four friends didn't dance down the street while the multitude clapped in rhythm? As I said yesterday, these are not Bostonians. These are Hebrews. What a scene. But as he went home, he bore something far more impressive than his bed on his shoulder. It was a clean heart. The first time in his life ever that he had a clean, pure heart. No guilt. None. No bitterness. No tension. I think he probably felt like he was floating towards home. Think of it. Think of what Jesus did by the hardest thing ever. He took his sins. He bore them away. He took his guilt. He took his tension. Absolutely clean. Forgiven. Now someday, that man's uh, newly restored limbs would wither. His body uh, would cease to function and shut down. But there would remain in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Because Jesus did the hardest thing ever in time and eternity. Now the Lord can do anything he wants. He can heal any disease he pleases. But the greatest miracle of all is the forgiveness of our sins. I want to say, has he ever said to you, 
my daughter, your sins are forgiven. My son, your sins are forgiven. Have you heard those words? I don't mean audibly, but I mean in your heart of hearts. Have you heard it? Well, when we began, we talked about how Luke said the power of the Lord was with him to heal so that that room is charged and the atmosphere crackled with expectation. And here's what I think. I think that when this text is really opened, like we did it this morning, and you see it, that that there's kind of a uh, spiritual fire in the air. I think if you could... If you could see the spiritual realities, if you had 3D glasses and you could see the realities, you might see that there is kind of a glow here. And perhaps there are some people that are backlit with a little more of that neon because the lightning of grace is about to strike. Because all of a sudden the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to see what Jesus did So maybe one over here, maybe one here, maybe one back there, maybe several. And if that's what's happening, if if God is causing you to see and you say, aha, I see it and I believe, then um, lightning has struck. See, our greatest need today is still the same. We need our sins forgiven. And Jesus has gone to the cross to do the greatest work ever. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ rest on your souls. May God open your eyes. And for those who love Jesus, may you love him even more. As you see, he did the hardest thing in time and eternity to make you his son, to make you his daughter. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ go out in all of its power in these moments. Amen.